Welcome to Jonah Carey Podcast, friends. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today's guest is Trevor Hoffman. Trevor Hoffman, Hall of Famer Trevor Hoffman, checking in to discuss... Well, we recorded this on Friday, so at that time the Red Sox were in the World Series and the Dodgers were threatening. And uh, now they're both in, Red Sox and Dodgers. And so we're putting it out on a Tuesday. It's sort of a, a little bit of a World Series preview podcast. Lots of baseball talk, lots of talk of evolving bullpen roles. Trevor worked in a very regimented kind of closer role. And now Josh Hader in the third inning. Yeah, that's all good. We get into that. We get into all kinds of stuff. Really compelling conversation. Trevor, a smart one. Uh, and I really enjoyed this. So, yeah, he's uh, representing Perfect Game. He's serving as a brand ambassador for them. And uh, we appreciate them providing Trevor for us. Even got into some discussion of Perfect Game itself uh, with, I would think, a somewhat challenging question about them. And Trevor answered in an interesting way, too. Somewhat controversial sometimes, that uh, platform. But uh, listen, uh, it's a great place for kids to be able to showcase their skills. I think the concern is kids trying to throw 100 miles an hour and risking getting injured, which may have something to do with parents, coaches, what have you. It's, the debate rages on, really, about pitching injuries and what causes it and all that good stuff. But like I said, Trevor came on. He was fantastic, and we appreciate it. Also appreciate the first of this week's sponsors, and that is Zip Recruiter. Listen, you know what's smart? ZipRecruiter.com slash Jonah. It's a smart way to hire the right person. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Yeah, that's right. It's powerful matching technology, scans thousands of resumes, identify people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job, and actively invites them to apply so you get qualified candidates fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the United States of America. And right now, listeners of the Joan and Carrie podcast can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Jonah. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Jonah. And one more time, in the most radio voice of all time, it is ZipRecruiter.com slash Jonah. Thank you to ZipRecruiter for sponsoring the podcast because ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Quick programming notes, CBSSports.com. I've got a World Series preview up today, which is Tuesday. Normally podcast runs on Wednesdays, we said. It's up today on Tuesday. Check out the World Series preview. I did a live chat of Game 7, which I guess if you want to go back, you could do that. Brewers-Dodgers, that was great. Enjoyed that with Dane Perry and R.J. Anderson and Mike Exisa. Check out all of them. Uh, also, Matt Snyder and Catherine Aquavella. It's a great group. Really, really cool group of writers. Uh, go find their work as well. Uh, they kill it all year long at CBS Sports. It's a, a pretty big honor to work with some excellent, talented people over there. Uh, great editors and all that. And I don't think I could said enough. We should appreciate our fellow human beings. So yes, I'm saying that they're awesome. Uh, and also possibly we'll see possibly a hit coming up at Sportsnet as well, uh, for the World Series. So yeah, all of that good stuff. Be sure to check all of that out. You should also check out the second of this week's sponsors. You know who it is. Say it with me. The longstanding sponsor of the Joe Carey podcast in its 75 million iterations and that of course is SeatGeek. Where the hell have you been if you're not using SeatGeek? I don't even want to read this ad copy anymore. Get on it already. What's wrong with you? Use SeatGeek. You get 20 bucks off of your first purchase. That's it. That's it. You want to buy a ticket anywhere? It's going to be, you know, maybe a comparable price. Maybe SeatGeek's got a bit a little bit of better price, but it's 20 bucks off. So just go ahead and do it. This is fruitless to be denying the power of SeatGeek. They're great. You want to go to a ball game? 
Okay, you look up a color-coded map. Oh, bleachers. Are, no, that's not the best deal behind home plate, upper deck. They've got it for you. Same with the concert. Same with the hockey game, football game, basketball game, probably high lie. I'm not sure. Let's say yes. SeatGeek is the best place to buy tickets to any game you could possibly want. It's the best value you could possibly get. I have used them a billion, zillion, trillion times for baseball games and hockey games and concerts and could not be more satisfied. And yes, I would tell you that if they never sponsored my podcast for one damn second. So how about that? Yes, that's right. Download the SeatGeek app, enter the promo code Jonah today, and you will get 20 bucks off of your first SeatGeek purchase as mentioned. Again, SeatGeek app, promo code Jonah, J-O-N-A-H. If you don't know that, I don't know what's wrong with you. You're listening to this podcast, and you'll get 20 bucks off of your first SeatGeek purchase. SeatGeek Life's an event, and we have the tickets. Thank you to SeatGeek for sponsoring the podcast. Here is the latest edition of the Jonah Carey Podcast. We've had John Smoltz on. We've had Tim Raines on. We're collecting Hall of Famers, and the great Trevor Hoffman joins us today. Enjoy. Mr. Trevor Hoffman, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. Lots to cover. Uh, I always enjoyed watching you as a fan and uh, occasionally writing about you from a distance. Uh, great career, Hall of Fame career, lots to get into. But I want to start by talking about this year's postseason because there's a lot to get to. And this podcast doesn't come out until Tuesday, so we're going to hedge a little bit. But we know for a fact that the Boston, <laughs> yeah, I know, right? But we know for a fact that the Boston Red Sox are going to the World Series, and I know that you've been watching. So let's talk about the Red Sox first of all. I have to tell you, I had the Astros. I think most people had the Astros, which is funny, isn't it? Because the Astros, the Red Sox won 108 games, and yet were perceived by many as the underdog. So what did you see uh, from these two teams? And, I don't know, did it surprise you that the Red Sox prevailed as convincingly as they did? I thought the Astros were going to win in four after game one. To be wow. With you. They just seemed that much more superior with their pitching. Mm-hmm. Um, they got to sail uh, in game one with their horse, and things didn't look good moving forward. But I, I'll tell you, um, their resiliency, uh, the depth of their, their bench, um, their guys in the pen really pitched well this series, and, um, they got the ball to Craig Kimbrough, who did an amazing job of shutting it down. I mean, uh, they really, they really kind of put things back together in a, in a quick manner. And um, for what they went down in, to Houston and did um, is no small feat to win three in a row down there. That's pretty, pretty darn good. So I would, I would, I would say that uh, the break might not be good for them. Uh, we talked, you know, game, game one's on Tuesday. That's a lot of time off for a team that uh, will enjoy a little bit of rest, but no, no, no short sense that uh, you know. Sometimes, you know, losing momentum when you're starting to click is, is not such a good thing. Well, and let's get into that a little bit. You know, from your perspective in particular, you're a guy who routinely would throw two days in a row, three days in a row, what have you. I think rest versus rust can vary by different positions. But just tell me about your personal experience. Did it bug you 
let's say, coming back from the All-Star break, although you often pitch in the All-Star game. But, you know, if you have three, four days <laughs> off or, or if you did, you know, you did pitch in the postseason, did you feel not like yourself? What do you do? Do you just go throw a whole bunch of warm-up sessions? Do you try to stay fresh because, or rather loose because that can't be easy having that much time off, especially for relief pitchers? Yeah, I, w- I was lucky because it kind of came with the job territory throughout the regular season. So mm-hmm. from a personal standpoint, I was able to monitor, you know, how to stay sharp with throwing bullpens, how to be able to long toss to keep the arm strong. Um, I wasn't overly concerned with, um, you know, getting out into the game because I wasn't, I wasn't a sinker ball guy that needed to be a little fatigued to have a little more True. run. Uh, what heavy slider usage guy. So I needed my arm to, you know, feel that pitch. I was a fastball, spotted up, change up guy. So command was important, but I was able to do things personally that, you know, I was able to stay sharp. It's just when I say, you know, time off isn't good. It's, it's more or less for the, the mojo of the team. It's yeah. the, the lineup consistency. It's, you know, the fine tuning of, of a, a hitter, you know, those nuances, they can, they can leave you in a hurry. <laughs> and so, yeah. um, you know, with, you know, you kind of saw it with the Brewers coming out of a, a hard fought series with the, you know, with the Cubs and the one game they, they plowed through the Rockies and had a little bit of time off before they, they met the Dodgers. And really they got off to a quick start too. They got game yeah. one and then the Dodgers have come roaring back. So, you know, I think, to an extent we see how it does affect teams with rest and, and how they are able to maneuver and get past it. You said something so telling in talking about what you thought might happen in Astros Red Sox. I think I did the same thing. I think a lot of people did. We sat there and we said, wow, Verlander and Cole and Keiko and Morton. Oh my gosh. You know, do, no disrespect to sale and price and Porcello and those guys, but geez, Louise, how is anybody going to beat them? I don't know if we need to approach the playoffs that way anymore. And I'll give you that it's an extreme example, but look at the Milwaukee Brewers. Hey, Wade Miley, go throw to one batter. Oh, now you're out of the game. I mean, we've really, really changed pitcher usage, both in the regular season when relief pitchers are more prevalent than ever, and even more so, much more so in the postseason where, hey, you know, in the past you had Randy Johnson and Curt Schilling. You were probably going to win the World Series. Or Pedro Martinez and Curt Schilling. Whatever it was. And now it's... Bullpens are being used so aggressively. Platoons are being used so aggressively. Everything is micromanaged, and I don't mean that in a negative way. Should we stop thinking about postseason matchups and maybe success in general as, you've got a great rotation, buddy, you're definitely going to win? Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, I'll be honest with you. I, I don't think it's sustainable to okay. rely on as many bullpen pieces to get through deep series. Um uh, matchups are, are funny. I, I thought it was pretty interesting how Craig had Miley, um, Wade Miley sh- uh, pitch to one batter yeah. in hopes that he struck a different lineup against himself and then come in with Woodruff. I thought it was ingenious. And then mm-hmm. kind of have a game plan where he would come back on a day's rest uh, after kind of going through maybe a pregame situation to get ready for one batter, even though no one else knew that. To be ready for game six, I think it's, it's pretty <laughs> remarkable thinking, to be honest with you. But um, it, it, this is no different. I think that this is the model that the Brewers have used all year long. They've yeah. had been banged up. They've really relied on Julius Shasheen to, to do his job, and then everyone kind of fit in behind that. Mm-hmm. And it was the strength of the bullpen and, and Hader and Jeffers and, and Knable that have just anchored games that uh, you know they've been able to win. So. Uh, for me, I don't think long-term success. I still think the horses like the Astros have lined up in their 
their rotation is kind of the way to go, even though we're starting to see more bullpenning going on. But mm. uh, yeah, Astros are at home, and Milwaukee's still going. They got a shot. I want to talk about Miley a little bit because obviously he didn't get to show his stuff in his most recent game, but looked so good in his previous outing. And it speaks to a change. You know, here's a guy who came into the major leagues, was really good right off the bat. And then let's say that he bounced around. He was a capable innings eater, but he was by no means, you know, a devastating pitcher. But he sure was in Milwaukee, not just with that game that he threw in the postseason, but looked great in the regular season. And it speaks to this idea of, I'm just going to use veteran craftiness. People talk about veteran craftiness. You used to throw 96. You don't anymore. You do different stuff. And you certainly know about that because you came in fastball changeup guy and you had a really good fastball. Let's not mince words. And by the end, it was you used the fastball to keep guys honest, but the changeup was the pitch of death. That was the one that you could really throw as a hammer, even when your fastball was, you know, three, four, five ticks lower than it used to be. How does one adjust? How do you take stock of your repertoire and despite having kind of a healthy arrogance that goes with being a professional athlete, say, I'm not what I once was. I got to really change it up and I'll get results that way. Yeah, I really think that the success is behind knowing what you're capable of doing and what you're not capable of doing. Um, For me, it was I was comfortable knowing I could spot up a heater regardless of velocity. It was important for me to recognize maybe what the hitter was trying to do. Um, It's a little bit of a cat and mouse situation. Only being out there for, you know, a short stint helps. You know, if I would have had to go through lineups two, three, four times, which, you know, you want to do as a starter – it obviously would be different, but being able to go in and max it out for three three hitters, four hitters, what have you, um, you know, I could stick with my game plan. So um, it, it's more of a situation where I think it's important to have some of the information on what guys you're facing don't do well, but still stick with your strengths and then get to the point where, you know, the game is not going to change. It's, it's still easier to pitch 0-2-1-2 than it is 2-0-2-1. And so um, regardless of what your stuff is, if you put a hitter in a, in a favorable count that's gonna be hard to pitch at the big league level i'm holding back several questions i want to follow up on on the personal level because i do want to jump ahead to game six for a second acknowledging that the game will have already happened when this podcast comes out but let's let's try right. to predict beforehand let's try to look smart maybe uh you know that you know the wade miley's going to start again if you're dave roberts i would argue that the dodgers are a little bit more dangerous against right-handers with uh, Muncie, with Bellinger, Yasiel Puig even hits righties better, despite the fact that he's a right-hander. David Freeze is a quality player, but, you know, maybe Max Muncy's a little bit more dangerous than David Freeze, as one example. But you know what Craig Hansel just did. You know what he's capable of, that he could flip the lineup and really empty your bench. Now you don't have a plan C. You've done plan A and plan B. So if you're Dave Roberts, do you dare Craig Council to... Do to do what he will. Do you just stack your lineup with lefties and say, "Okay, change it up," or is that giving in to the guy because now you've got lefty on lefty and you've kind of screwed yourself a little bit? What is the strategy as a manager, given what we've had? I find this to be one of the most fascinating. As much as I enjoy watching, obviously the game played, I think the managerial strategy from a Dodgers perspective in Game Six is fascinating. No doubt, and they have kind of the ability to look inside the book and read up because they went through it a couple days ago. Mm-hmm. And so um, I would, I would, I would venture to say that they're going to have the exact same lineup that Miley way Miley would have faced had he gone deeper than one, okay. one batter. So um, that being said, um, I think so much momentum in playoff games happened by who scores first. And it really changed the way you maneuver throughout the rest of the game yep. based off of your chasing a, a lead 
or chasing a deficit or you're, or you're running with a lead. And so um, I know that if the Brewers have a lead somewhere in the middle of the game like they did in game one, you might see Hader again for three innings. And yeah. just say, hey, throw caution out of the wind. Let's try and get game six in our belt. And anything can happen in game seven. It's, you know, all hands on deck. I might not have Hader for, you know, too much if I use him like I did in game one. But you got to get through game six to be able to have a game seven. You know, we talk about Knable, Hader, Jansen, anybody who's a relief pitcher. These guys are all wildly talented, really good at their craft. They work hard. And I would venture to say that none of them grew up thinking, okay, I'm going to be a dominant closer. When you're a pitcher, typically, if you're pitching in high school or, or Little League or whatever, if you're the best guy, you're probably going to be the starter. You're probably going to be the ace of the rotation, and that's going to be that. And it is an adjustment, usually, to become a closer. You think of some of the greatest closers of all time. Dennis Eckersley, John Smoltz, Eric Gagne, all these guys. Mariano Rivera, heck. They all were starting pitchers, and for one reason or another, it could have been a durability issue. It could have been, you know what, you've got two great pitches but not three. Whatever it was, it was go to the bullpen and do something else. And your track might have been a little bit different, but there was certainly a point at which, I'm sure, you were, you know, a dominant pitcher and presumably going to be a starter. And it was, no, you know what, we're going to try you in the ninth inning. Was that a disappointment for you? Did you say, cool, I get to run out with veins coming out of my neck and I could throw 97 and only have to worry about 10 pitches? How does the mental approach happen for somebody like you or Mariano or somebody of that nature where you're going from one role to another that in some ways some people could view as a demotion? Yeah, that's a good question. I think you were right. I'm hitting the nail on the head in a sense that as a, as a youngster, or young amateur, if you're that good – you're going to, you're going to pitch a lot more than one inning. Yeah. So really the only gentleman that I saw growing up that really was a late inning pitcher and, you know, a little bit past my era was Houston street. You know, he went to college and was a closer in college. And so, yep. uh, ended up doing it in pro bowl, but you're right. A lot of guys do transition into that role. And I didn't look at it as a demotion. I actually got a chance to do both of the minor leagues, mm-hmm. um, had some success as a starter and it was hard to sit around for four days even though you had your routine, it was, you know, tidied up. You knew when to work out. You knew how to, you know, what you had to do for running. You knew, you know, how to take care of your arm to get ready for the next bullpen and then obviously a start. And and it was a lot of waiting around. And so it's a long – it's a great wait if you've won the game you just got done pitching in, and it's a long wait if uh, you lost the game. And so I like the idea of being able to come to the yard um, prepared to play on a daily basis and, and being a transition guy from the infield that was kind of what I was used to. And so yeah, there is a little bit of that, you know, hair on fire kind of thing when you come out, yeah. but the same tone, you know, every, every inning I basically threw in the big leagues was, you know, a tightrope walk. You know, there wasn't that, you know, ease into the game, get used to it, you know, get <laughs> the lineup. And then ultimately, you know, the, the game gets tight as you move forward. Every pitch was a crucial pitch. And so I kind of liked that uh, scenario um, coming out of the pen. And I want to get down to the, to some details on that. The guy who might have been most telling to me in covering baseball, I wrote a book about the Tampa Bay Rays a bunch of years ago, and late in his career, Troy Percival went over to the Tampa Bay Rays. And Troy is a different guy. He's like a real – I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this, and I'm going to say it with all the love in the world. Some people in baseball would use the term red ass. I think Troy Percival would be a little bit of a red ass. A likable guy. I like him a lot. His teammates liked him and all that. But a tough guy, you know, really had his own way. And I can remember young Troy Percival. This was, I think, a New York Times article. 
And they were writing about Percival in the 2002 World Series. And this young and dynamic guy and him and K-Rod, and they were such a great combination. And they asked Percival, what do you do to get ready? What do you do so that when you come out, your hair is on fire and the neck is bulging and, and you look terrifying and, and all this stuff? And he said, I drink 10 cups of coffee. And I thought, oh, my God, 10 cups of coffee. That is significant. And, of course, you know, later on we had energy drinks. We had this. We had that. Uh, I'm, I'm, I, I can't speak to for sure one way or another, but in the sixties, if you wanted it, amphetamines were readily available on the table for you personally. Did you have a routine to say, yes, yes, yes. I'm going to get fired up. I'm going to do this thing. Was it a physical routine? Was it coffee? <laughs> was it, uh, some sort of mental exercise or was it, all right, time to warm up and I'm going to go out there. All right. There's, so there's a lot there. Uh, okay. <laughs> Troy, uh, Troy was awesome. I enjoyed um, competing uh, in the same venue as him to watch him go about his business. And, you know, he was, he was, he was, yeah, he played with a lot of passion. And, yes. You know, being a former catcher, you know, that there's a, a element of a tough guy there as well. So <laughs> yeah. he was able to transition that and take that to, to the mound. That's the way he pitched, he pitched with a lot of energy. And so, yeah. Um, for myself, um, coffee wasn't necessarily the key. I wanted to be, try and be as calm as possible, mm. especially later in my career when I wasn't throwing very hard. So that I could, you know, maneuver through a situation that might be highly leveraged and the, you know, the stress be on the hitter. And I'm just kind of going through, you know, the same scenario that I've gotten used to. And so uh, I found that it wasn't important to get caffeinated up or, you know, jacked up in a way that yeah. you never know when you're going to come down. At some point in time, if you go into extra range or the game's going quick. You know, there, there's certain levels of where you're going to be at with, with caffeine. And so I was told early in my career from a, a track and field guy from San Diego State that you're better off hydrating, just drink water. Hmm. And, and so I would have three bottles of water, room temperature at the start of the game, so that my muscles would be hydrated, I could be more flexible, and my body could withstand what I'm going to put it through. And I would be more calm with, you know, my, my mental state, and I could focus easier. And so I found... I was almost more ramped up and more ready to go into a game by drinking water and be prepared in that way than I was trying to jack up with coffee or an energy drink. And so I think it's all about what you're comfortable going out there um, with. I think sometimes there's a, a, you're a little erratic with how your body is day in and day out if you're stimulating it some way where if you can create a consistent approach with you know being calm and still being fired up. I mean, if you can't come out of the end of a ball game with a lead, and people on the road hating you and people at home <laughs> loving you, there's enough energy there you can get jacked up. And so I found, for me, being able to be calm was more important. Well, and the word routine, I believe you've used somewhere in there, and that's an interesting one, too, in today's day and age, because, and this is a little bit of a throwback, I feel like the closer role wasn't as codified if you go back a generation or more. Tony La Russa comes in and says, okay, Eck, you got the ninth. Hey, Honeycutt, you're our you know lefty-righty maybe guy in the eighth. We got Fossus, we got this guy, we got this guy. Everybody's got roles. And uh, when your career started, it was very much ingrained that people had roles. You're generally speaking the mop-up guy, the long guy, the middle guy, the setup guy, the closer. All things be equal. There could be, you know, deviations, but that was mostly it. Unless you hadn't pitched in nine days, then they get you working a 9-1 blowout or whatever. So, <laughs> right. And so... I, and, and there would be talk about closer mentality and people would be, managers would be criticized that if you use the closer, let's say in a tie game in the eighth inning, what are you doing? This guy's used to pitching with the bases empty, clean, ninth inning, safe situation. And there'd be confirmation bias. Oh, he gave up a three run jack. It's because he wasn't pitching in his normal role. 
Do you buy that? Do you think that pitchers are such creatures of routine that if they are shunted into something a little bit different, they won't be able to do it? Or is it, you know what, you just got to mentally prepare for any situation? Because I can see both arguments. I understand why it would be comfortable to sit there and say, oh, I got save number 41 coming up. I'm going to get ready for the ninth. So what what was it for you, and what do you think about pitchers in general uh, from that respect? Yeah, I think it's an interesting concept. I, I, I did have similar troubles in non-safe situations, hmm. and here's my stick with it. I, I don't think I prepared the exact same way regardless of if it was a 10-run lead or a one-run lead going into the ninth inning or eighth inning, for that matter. Yep. And so the difference is the pressure's not on the hitter when the game's not on the line or it's a tie game. And so there's going to be another inning if we don't score type of thing. Mm-hmm. And when the game's – you're pitching with a lead, there's, there's a certain um, rush, we'll say. There's a certain anxiety that goes on to the hitting portion of that confrontation that isn't there when it's a tie ball game. And so – the parameters kind of change around the way the approach is of the hitter, not necessarily the, the, the you know, non-safe situation. The guy's not, you know, it's a different mindset. And so that, to me, was the difference. I could tell different the guys would have different at-bats against me in a tie game versus um, I, 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 I me trying to protect the lead. So um, routines are important. We touched on, you, t- you mentioned that, you know, yep. X kind of was ushered in by La Russa and, and that role and that way. And I think, you know, it's twofold. It allowed people to prepare individually for what they were going to be asked to do, whether it was the fifth inning, the sixth inning, seventh inning, et cetera. Um, there, there's, there's a benefit there that you can, you can prepare in a way that you, you know, there's, you just, it's a foregone conclusion. Oh, Tommy's getting up. It's yeah. his window of being ready. Um, the, the only downside I saw to that was that you start to be a prisoner of expectations, good or bad. Hmm. So if you were successful, and you, you go out and you didn't do your job one day, it's like you're being compared against yourself. And sometimes when you have a career of length and success, it's no longer about the routine. It's about, okay, is he going to continue to do what we expect him to do because he's always done it. And so yeah. it's a different level of pressure that comes to the situation that being in routine you're, you're striving for. So, um, And that, that seems to be thrown out the window these, these days. I mean, guys are coming in all over the place. Yeah, um, They're pitching for a long period of time. I only my only concern is I wonder how how long of a career we're looking at for guys. Andrew Miller was this guy a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. got used a ton in the postseason, was as dominant as we see Hader, and now he's not quite the same pitcher. You know, Chapman was kind of used a little bit like that with the Cubs, and he's kind of done a nice job in New York, but has he been the, the same guy? So uh, I think there's there's a there's a price that's paid when 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 we're all over the map. Yeah, I think that's certainly fair. Uh, speaking of getting fired up, so. Famously, infamously, you had one of the greatest uh, walk-up songs of all time. It certainly got fans in San Diego fired up for years and years and years. You hear the bell. You know what's happening. The bullpen gate opens. Here comes our guy. Uh, how much thought went into that? Was that was First of all, was that your decision to go with Hell's Bells? And if so, was it just somebody asked you one day and you said, I don't know, I like ACDC, that sounds good? Or was it, oh, buddy, this is what I warm up with. It's got to be Hell's Bells. Forget Metallica. Forget Guns N' Roses. It has to be this song. I, what, what was it for you? Was it important to you, or was it just, oh, yeah, this is a cool song, I'll go with it? Yeah, it was, it was pretty much that. I was coming out to just about anything that they would want to put on yeah. loud. And so um, Eric Meyer and Chip Powers were two guys in the entertainment department of the Padres, and I think Steve Finley came to him and goes, hey, I just came from Baltimore a few years ago, and you know, we had we had some music for guys coming out of the pen. You need to come up with something for Offie. Mm-hmm. So they came down with 
you know, Hell's Bells by ACDC. And I, I didn't know much about it, to be honest with you. He said, you know, there'll be these bells, and they'll go into a solo guitar riff, and then it just goes into, you know, an awesome, you know, stanza of the, of the, of the song. And so I go, I'm cool with it. And the first time we did it in 98, we're winning, which helped. It was middle yeah, of the season. Yeah, for sure. And it took the fan base kind of by surprise. And you're right. It, it was a great entrance song. It, it took on a life of its own. And uh, it was a, I could, you, you talk about a kick of an, adrenaline when I came out of the bullpen at home and I knew that those bells would go and the song would play and the fans would get excited. There was no, there was no way I wasn't going to be pumped up to go out. I love all that. I get chills thinking about it. I went to Padres games over the years. I, I lived in L.A. during the Aragonia era when they were playing Welcome to the Jungle, which was the same thing. And I saw Percival. Yeah, all that. The whole Southern California crew was really good in that era, come to think of it. I, I, I'm waiting, though, for the first closer to almost be self-deprecating about it. Like, come out to Why Can't We Be Friends? Or, you know, just come out to this, like, silly song and just go against convention. Yeah, Hoffman did this and Rivera did this. But you know what I really want to hear? something just goofy you know just play happy birthday or something like that i feel like you can you can you can nudge at this convention maybe even do it one time i'm waiting for the first guy who's got a sense of humor i feel like if uh turk wendell became a dominant closer that's how we might have gone maybe <laughs> yeah he might have been superstitious enough where he wouldn't want to keep it had he not had success true. that's true I, well. you know what it might be interesting if that were to happen i my personal opinion is I always thought it would be funny to be on the road and the visiting team to know the the guy's song and play it. Yes. But then chop it up where you mix it in a you know a, a slow portion of it that you kind of spliced in or you you cut it off and it just goes silent. So you, you're you, you know this guy's so used to routine coming out to certain parts <laughs> of the, the song and you're in a visiting ballpark you hear it, it throws him off a little bit it gets going he's kind of liking what he's got hearing and then all of a sudden it gets cut off and it goes into something else i mean to me that would be a nice way to mess a guy up on the road but uh i haven't seen that yet yeah josh reddick as a hitter coming out when he was playing in oakland to careless whisper by george michael i thought was right on point too so there there was definitely something there um i want to ask you a little bit about later in your career and then right after your career assuming the role of mentor and um there was a guy who wrote a book which was not well-received in a lot of baseball circles, I have to say, uh, which was Dirk Hayhurst. And Dirk pitched yep. in the Padres organization at one point. And Dirk, frankly, said some negative things about a lot of people and a lot of circumstances that had to do with baseball. It could be because he felt he didn't get the chances he deserved, whatever. And I know Dirk a little bit. I enjoyed the book. But I'll tell you, one guy who comes across looking really, really good in that book is Trevor Hoffman. I mean, it was, you know, I didn't like this and this was troubling or whatever. But here comes this guy and he didn't have to take the time and he really took the time to try to make me feel comfortable and talk to me about things and work with me. And I mean, it was really effusive in the praise. And it's interesting to me because you could go through your career and you could make a bunch of all-star games and, and heck, make the Hall of Fame. You don't owe anybody anything. You don't, you could sit on the beach and do whatever you want to do. And here you are, you know, at spring training, really making a concerted effort to help guys, help fringe guys, frankly, help guys that aren't supernaturally talented to have the best experience they can have in the majors. What made you decide to adopt that role and to try to do that for guys? Because again, you don't have to, you had the money, you had the esteem, you could have retired in peace. And everybody said, Trevor Hoffman, great guy. Don't need to say anything else. Yeah, I'll be honest with you. I think it's because I was a teammate. I mean, he was my teammate. Yeah. So I, I I read the book. I appreciated his kind words, and I respected his opinion on some of the other things that were a little controversial. But mm -hmm. uh, 
in all honesty, um, our our group, our team wasn't going to be successful if everyone wasn't clicking on all cylinders. So if I had the ability to give a nugget here or there or make someone feel more comfortable, it's only going to enhance our ability to be a better team. And so um, that's just kind of the approach I always had coming up. I was comfortable in my own skin that I was the guy and I was good at what I was doing. And so, you know, it does no good to just, you know, be out there all by yourself. It's, it'd be a lonely feeling. So, yeah. You know, you need need everybody to be successful to, to be good as a team. And so um, it was nice to, to be able to, you know, have that come out. I think at the end of my career it was probably more telling with the Brewers. I had a good first year yep. and I did, I got off to a horrendous start my second year in Milwaukee. And, you know, it was really now, now is the time where you, you talk the talk. Now it's a matter of walking the walk. And so I lost my, my closers role to John Axford. Um, and I couldn't, I couldn't tell you how rewarding it was to have guys feel comfortable in a, in a very uncomfortable situation for me. And I, I really enjoyed being kind of that mentor role that, uh, you know, uh, and he didn't have to listen to me. He could have said, you know what, yeah. man, I've just watched you crap the bed. And, <laughs> you know, I, I, I know what I'm kind of able to do here and I can maneuver through this situation with my 95 and, and get through it. And, and Axe couldn't have been any better as well. You know, it wasn't an easy situation for him. But again, going back to this, you know, being removed, it was, it was, it was an awesome feeling to be able to give back to the game that had given me so much and be in a different role and ultimately um, getting over the top of, of 600 saves at the time that didn't look like it was going to happen anytime soon. But uh, I think I got more out of that season than I did a lot of the other ones that I played. That's for another former guest on this show and a fine Canadian. So that none of that surprises me, all those fine words that, <laughs> you, that you mentioned. Uh, I want to ask you about getting inducted into the Hall of Fame. I was there for the induction. Uh, it was really cool. Big class, man. Whew, big class. You got guys from the – you got Tram and Morris showing up. You got Vladdy being Vladdy. I mean, just a lot of stuff. And uh, really, really cool, the cross-section of fans that came out. I, listen, I appreciate a good Yankees and Red Sox story as much as anybody else. But I got really fired up in recent years when the Expos and the Astros and the Padres and their fans got to really, really celebrate because it doesn't happen every day. It's not like, oh, it's every other year. It's time for a Yankee. Look, Derek Jeter's going in. It was really, really cool. <laughs> really cool to see the Padres fans just out of their minds, excited, really excited. This is great. We're going to do this. I, I was there for, uh, may rest in peace. I was there for Tony's induction as well years ago. Just so, so cool, the support. And... I'm wondering how that was for you, both from um, from a you know re- reconnecting with the San Diego perspective, but also just you know walking through the Otisaga Hotel and oh look, it's Johnny Bench. Oh look, it's Sandy Koufax. Oh look, it's Willie Mays. <laughs> That's got to be mind-boggling. As great as you were, I feel like there's a certain uh, hierarchy in your mind that a certain you know modesty and humility that goes with. I was good, but geez, that's Willie Mays. Tell me about that whole weekend and what that was like for you. <laughs> I don't think you could be more right, to be honest yeah. with you. Um, it uh, it was an out-of-body experience, um, really, the whole weekend. But mm. you're right. The, the Padre fan came out in droves. Uh, you know, it's not an easy pilgrimage to come no. to San Diego or wherever you're from. And uh, they were out in full force. It was amazing. And so to be able to share that moment, I think it really worked because, you know, Tony – and like you said, rest in peace, um, 10 years ago is when he went in. And yeah. so I think people realize, hey, this doesn't happen all the time. And I want to have the opportunity to go with my son or daughter or, or mom and experience what could be my only opportunity with the team that I, I adore. And so mm. for them to show up like they did was amazing. And, you know, 
we had two of the best classes. I mean, Tony was part of 80-something thousand. I was part of 50-something thousand. So there, maybe there's something to be said about that and the Pottery fam. But it uh, very few things really meet your expectation or exceed. And you know, that whole weekend was, was incredible. I, and I do remember sitting in the lobby of the hotel and watching the greats of the game, the pillars of the game go by and you're, you're just, you're shaking your head going, what am I doing here? <laughs> what? Do I, do I really belong here? And it, you know, you, you have to put things in perspective. Like I was a specialty role. I, one of two guys to achieve a certain, you know, level, Mariano and myself mm-hmm. at 600 plus safe. Will it be matched? It could be with some of the young guys playing the game now, but only two, there's something to be said for that. So, for sure. you know, I think so often, you know, people kind of compare, Mariano and myself against one another, and that's not the case. Nobody really de- de- denigrates any of the three thousand hit club members. They're all kind of lumped yes. together, and they're they're all praised. I think that should be kind of the same way here with a closers role. But uh, yeah, it was it was an amazing experience to see guys that I watched on television and didn't get to compete against because that would have you know been more comfortable. Like getting to see Bagwell and Biggio and Glab and Maddox. I mean, those are guys you competed with. There's a familiarity, but. You're right to see Mr. Aaron and to see Mr. Bench um, just kind of took things to another level. No doubt about it. So I want to ask you about your role with Perfect Game and about Perfect Game in general. And, um, you know, a, a great place for young kids to showcase their skills. Uh, I, I, I read a book by Jeff Passan called The Arm, and it talked about Perfect Game and it talked about tournaments, tournaments and it talked about showcases and it talked about ways for kids to make themselves known to the world and to, you know, advance their skills and be drafted and so forth. And it's a great venue and I think it's necessary. And I think, uh, you know, AAU has that a little bit with basketball. You know, this is a pretty good uh, flip side to that where, hey, you know what? You could be good, but maybe you play in rural Montana. Here's your chance. And that's all great. The thing that I wonder about is with kids, especially pitchers, you know, you've got your chance and there's so much pressure and there's got to be so much temptation to just say, I'm going to throw until my arm falls off. And I might, I don't even know if I could throw 99, but I'm going to try to do that because this is my chance. This is my spotlight. So how do you, how does perfect game balance the two where great, great opportunity. This is what kids want. This is what parents want. Good coaches, good staff. You know, it's well managed. It's well done versus, you know, the inherent risks that come with being 16 years old and maybe trying to jump ahead <laughs> further than you should at that time. Yeah, I, I think what Perfect Game does so great is they provide a platform. I think, in essence, it's up to the parents and the coaches to protect the arm mm. of the kids that are participating in it. And so, um, not to say we're all hands off because that's not the case either. Sure. Uh, but I think there's still a learning process and a figuring out process of this whole thing because Tommy John surgeries are still happening in the big leagues with professional athletes. So not, not, sure. nobody's figured out the magic potion or scenario that's going to keep kids healthier throughout the game of baseball. It's just it's it's not really a crapshoot, but, you know, we're still trying to figure it out. And yeah. So um, I think it's amazing. I think it's, uh, you know, they do a lot of amazing things. Like you mentioned, rule wherever, America, professional baseball is going to find that kid. Yes. Like it's their job as scouts to go and uncover every leaf or look under every rock. And so it, I think what Perfect Game allows is that, one, it does it make it easier for the professional ranks. And nobody can get really hide anymore. Everyone kind of knows who everyone is. But I think from a collegiate standpoint, a kid that might not be really looking at a professional career right at this point in time, it allows the, the colleges um, to go out and to scout. You know, they're not always going to be able to go around the country and seek out 
people that might fit into their organization or their, their school. Um, but this platform will allow schools to come together and be able to find fits for their programs and their institution. And so I think more than anything, it's, it's an opportunity for kids to be seen by colleges more so than professional ranks. And one last I wanted to ask you about, it's something that you focused on during your career as well, was finding a way to get involved with charitable organizations. In this case, it's the PG Cares Foundation. It's the Rady Children's Hospital. There are some things affiliated with Perfect Game that you are involved in. Tell me a little bit about that and, and why that's important to you. Yeah, you know, my, my role has expanded to the national spokesperson, but, uh, you know, it kind of all evolved because I was involved with the, the All-American Game in, in San Diego. And yep. that, that arm, um, their charitable arm is Rady Children's uh, Hospital in, in San Diego. They, they, do, they do an amazing job. My children actually had treatment there for some stuff, and oh, wow. um, they raise a ton of money. They're just they're just, they're great people, and so the fact that Perfect Game has uh, collaborated um, their, their weekend around uh, that charitable arm, where the kids get to go and visit with some of the cancer patients and uh, kids that you know are there for certain uh, treatments, it's awesome to see high school kids get the opportunity to see how impactful. They're not walking in with a big league uniform on. They're not on television yeah. until for the first time for in a couple days of the event. But to see the interaction between the two, I think it really is open in the eyes of the impact that they know that they have the opportunity to have uh, in their communities when they go back home. And so uh, it's a great opportunity to be involved uh, you know, from that standpoint. Uh, it's great to give knowledge in that regard to the kids too, but uh, Perfect Game does a nice job of giving back. Awesome. Trevor, I really appreciate your time, and I wish you all the best with all your endeavors. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Jonah, I appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity.